Section 21 of Bethlehem by Frederick William Faber. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Soul and Body, Part 3 There are fertile times when a man's thoughts float out from him, like the gushings of his life, becoming part of truth rather than expressing it, and making the mind a worshipper rather than a teacher. It is in such seasons that we see how all things are theology, and how in it all other sciences regain themselves rather than melt away. It is in such seasons that the chambers of space open out to us, their far-off walls dissolving into clearest ether, and we behold the vast empire of the sacred humanity running out with its glorious promontories into the infinite life of God, where we had never dared to dream. It is in such seasons that we hear the invisible, although we cannot see it, and thenceforth the next world haunts us here with a teasing like that of an unrecovered thought. It is the vision of the sacred humanity which the sick world wants this hour. We want daring men, men made daring by depth of erudition as well as by breadth of sympathy. We need men who are audacious because they are humble. We seek for men, or if so be a man, who shall wed all the sciences with theology, who shall reconcile faith and reason in one large lucid philosophy, and who shall teach the nations how the church can dilate herself to the size of all the social questions which so vex humanity. O oh, mistaken generation that would worship power, not beholding that such a worship is but an insincere confession of our weakness, and therefore of all seeming heroisms the most unhelpful and imbecile. There are some men who are all light, not so much because they see so much more than other men, as because other men see so much more in them, and by their means see also so much beyond them. It is such men as these that God is waiting to give us, when we have grown wise enough to lose all hope in ourselves. Full then of reverence for the person of the eternal word, let us now come to adore his holy flesh and his glorious human soul. Strict theology must attend us on our way, and while we search we must adore, and while we adore we must also search. In matters of doctrinal devotion false reverence is a common form of indevout patience. We must be upon our guard against this. God gives us the incarnation that we may exercise our thought and our love upon it. It is hardly possible for us to be too minute in our devotions to the sacred humanity, so as to implant the reality of it most deeply in our souls. Our minuteness is authorized by the example of the church, or rather the church beckons us to follow her example in this respect. The feasts which she celebrates, such as those of the sacred heart, the precious blood, the five wounds, the agony in the garden, the crown of thorns, and others, and then the devotion, which she not only permits but indulgences, are patterns which she puts before us, not so much to limit our devotions to those as to point the way to others. There is an essential irreverence and a tendency, which is at least implicitly heretical, to fastidiousness in this matter, which we shall have to consider also in the treatise on the Passion. It is an irreverence similar to that false devotion which the prophet rebuked in Ahaz when he refused to ask a sign of God, though God, through his prophet, bade him do so. The irreverence of not investigating the signs which God gives us for the purpose of being investigated as if we knew better than he, and were more delicate and circumspect in our operations. 
The mere fact of the sacred humanity is a revelation in its soul self. We cannot think now what we should have thought of God without it. He himself would have seemed different to us because we should not have had even the half-light we now have regarding the mystery of creation. We know that an uncreating God would have been equally adorable with a creating God, but the worshipfulness of the creatureless God would have been simply unimaginable, a possibility lighted only from his own side, inasmuch as none of his glory would have been projected in the shape of creatures to light it from the other. But it is not only new ideas of God which we receive from the sacred humanity, it is also a positive way to him, an approach which may be trodden, which must indispensably be trodden even by such souls as know not they are treading it, like the straggling pilgrims who reach God spent and wearied and surprised out of the countries of the heathen. Out of it, moreover, come new kinds of union between the soul and its creator, unions such as occupy mystical theology, and many of them of such a sacramental character as to have been unknown even to the Hebrew saints. Hence there is no minuteness about Jesus which does not concern us. For every conceivably varying contact with him is the communication of some new grace. It is itself some new method of transformation into him. His innumerable mysteries are compounds of many mysteries, and the far-reaching glass of love can resolve them into almost countless worlds of distinct beauty, separate power and individual significance. Of each of them it is true that it is not merely a picture but a power, not a beauty only but a grace also. We must look upon the sacred humanity as a world by itself, the head of all worlds, their pattern and their cause. The stars fly upon their silent courses, some law or some complexity of laws, whether it be those already discovered, or something simpler and more universal, the discovery of which awaits science further on, enables orbs of immense ponderousness to wheel through the slightly resisting space, as if it were in grooves of ice, while space is mercifully made soundless, lest all creatures should be killed by the roaring and clattering and booming of all these worlds in their tremendous velocity." All these worlds are sustained by God. All are supported by Him on the three pillars, which are but one pillar of His essence, presence, and power. But the sacred humanity is differently sustained. It is immediately supported by one of the three divine persons. It rests wholly on the person of the Word, in a way in which no other creature can rest on a divine person. It has not even the support of a human personality of its own, by a glorious privation, it lacks this natural support of its nature, while by a miraculous union, transcending all unities whatsoever, except the unity of God, it is united to the person of the Word. It is this humanity, this compound of a human soul and a human body, thus lying in unspeakable repose on the person of the Word, which we are now to consider more closely and more in detail than we have done before. But where shall we get nearest to it? From what point of view shall we be able most clearly to see those marvellous operations which it so studiously conceals? Yet while it conceals them, is it not also inviting us to the research of its secret wonders? When we desired to contemplate the divinity of the babe of Bethlehem, we let Mary lay him down upon the sands beneath the acacia of the wilderness, whither shall we now go to behold the operations of his sacred humanity? It is clear that we must look at it from more than one point of view, 
we must go and live with him in the holy house of Nazareth, a sanctuary so saturated with his long presence, so ineffaceably consecrated by his miraculous years of hidden holiness, that God has set it up for the present on the Adriatic shore as a wonder-working tabernacle, a living house of grace in the midst of the church, his larger house of grace, until the end of time. Through the months of the four seasons, through the days of the week with their varying occupations, through the hours of the day from the pearly dawn until the starry dusk, through the quiet watches of the nights of sleep and prayer, we must familiarize ourselves with our Lord's hidden years at Nazareth. His real growth of body, perceptible to us from time to time, would seem a worshipful mystery when we considered who he was. Here in autumn he is lifting weights which in spring he could not have lifted. The light is changed in his eye because the maturity of years is deepening in it. The tone of his voice is graver because the power of years is toning it. The voice of the eternal word broke, like the voices of other boys. His mother's ways come up upon the surface of his bodily gestures and surprise us into tears. His limbs are longer, thicker, broader. The colour of his hair becomes darker. With years, the beard of manhood browns his chin. We cannot watch this common growth of his human body without adoring, for all proofs of the reality of his human nature are always new, always penetrate into the deepest recesses of the soul, and always take our love and worship by surprise. But the seeming growth of his soul is yet more wonderful. He appears more holy than he was a month ago. Grace looks as if it had developed in him. It does not seem merely as if circumstances had opened wider fields for his grace, or had conferred upon them more advantageous positions, but it seems as if he grew in grace. The very seeming of such a thing is adorable, the more adorable because we know it is but seeming. His grace never grew from the first moment of his conception, but greater wisdom gives grace more liberty. Does he then seem more holy simply because he has grown wiser? but he has not grown wiser. This also is but a mysterious semblance, as we shall see presently. But here again the semblance is of itself adorable. Nevertheless he makes acquisitions, and this is truly a growth, yet in him hardly a growth, rather it is one of his loving condescensions. He gains no new knowledge. He does not grow in science, he only becomes master by acquisition of the same science of which he was master before, in higher ways. He knows certain things, such things as life's experience is capable of teaching, in two ways, instead of knowing them in one way. He has now a double knowledge of them, an acquired knowledge in addition to the infused knowledge he had before. But this learning by experience is a marvellous mystery in him. Then, in that life of Nazareth, how much is there which we cannot see? Every moment, waking or sleeping, that sacred humanity is the scene of endless and most heavenly operations by virtue of its union with the Word. At all hours the divine nature is sending forth a power which, as it were, oozes down into all the faculties of the soul and all the senses of the body, interpenetrating them all with singular virtue and with exceeding glory, now, as it were, giving free course to its love of the inferior nature, and now marvellously suspending such of its excellent effects as are incompatible with the suffering or humbled state in which our Lord at the time vouchsafed to be. The secret life of the simple union of the two natures in the divine person 
is a vast series of wonders, whose scene is the house of Nazareth, but whose grandeur outshines that of all creation beside. At times, too, as if the better to realize the deep-lying marvels and shy magnificence of Nazareth, we must fly to the summit of Tabor and anticipate the day of the transfiguration. There we behold those things blooming which at Nazareth were kept jealously closed in the modest-seeming sheaths of the most trivial actions. Yet in this respect there is more comparison than contrast between Nazareth and Tabor. The mountain top was itself a privacy, and the refulgence a holy house of light which screened him as effectually as the sacred walls of Nazareth. Even the manifestations of God are shrouded in secrecy. Yet the transfiguration was especially a manifestation of the splendor of his sacred humanity. It was not a change which came over it, nor a gift which was then and there granted to it, nor a mere external ratification of its honor from heaven. It was the outward blooming of that which had always been within, and had been ready to unfold its astonishing blossoms at any hour in the privacy of Nazareth. There could be no strife between the two natures of our blessed Lord. Nevertheless, we can hardly bring home to ourselves under any other figure their relation to each other during the days of his humiliation. It was as if the human nature were resisting the communications of the divine. It was as if the glories of the divine nature were being muffled in the imperfections of the human. It was as if the one nature were getting the upper hand of the other alternately. So we should express with obvious inaccuracy the appearance of several of the mysteries of the three and thirty years. The transfiguration under this figure would be a visible strife of the two natures manifested to a chosen few. Except in the case of his miraculous works of mercy, and those need hardly be accepted, it was perhaps in all his years before the resurrection the solitary victory of the divine nature over the human the single instance in which the veils of humiliation were burned away, and the human nature persuaded to display those gifts which belonged to it in virtue of its union with the word. Habitually, it kept its own proper glory suppressed, as if it were a slumbering volcano within him, and now at the top of Tabor a momentary eruption of its splendor was permitted. Yet it was all in such secrecy that it almost seems, we may reverently say it, as if it were less for the sake of the few spectators, less to prepare with compassionate artifice the weakness of Peter and James and John for the passion, than to ease the love which his divine nature had for the human, and, as it were, bribe it to keep quiet during the derelictions of the passion. We may gaze upon it now that we may remember what that natural state was to which the child, and then the boy, of Nazareth was always tending, and which, in his love of suffering, and of us, he was always purposely suppressing. We shall not also understand Nazareth unless we compare the sacred humanity in the holy house with the sacred humanity in its proper place in heaven. In the hour of his ascension, heaven became a new place. It was not like what it had been before. There was the same vision of the Most Holy in the quietude of its immutable magnificence, there were the same songs of the ancient kingdoms of the angels, swelled perhaps by the voices of the little human multitude that was newly come, and varied somewhat it might be in their doxologies by the presence of Mary's son. Yet this could not change heaven. Nevertheless, it was completely changed, changed by a greater change than creation was upon nothingness. 
This change was in the presence of the sacred humanity. It may be expressed in a word, but it is a word lying far beyond the compass of our understanding. Here was God adoring God. Here was a finite nature out of which infinite worship was streaming. Here was a created life which was in a most awful way a double of the Holy Trinity. Here was a human soul wrapped in the flames of the divinity and blazing there unharmed and inseparably one with the divine person. Here was an unveiled eminence of soul with operations so transcendent as to inspire the highest angels with awe. Here was a dazzling effulgence of body in such an inexpressible shining of material beauty as to light up the almost boundless world wherein God has been pleased to locate the beatific vision of himself. All this is summed up and depths after depths far beyond it indicated, and to our blindness only momentarily illuminated by the fact that here now for the first time in heaven was God worshipping God, the co-equal adoring the co-equal. I believe the glory of the sacred humanity in heaven to be simply incomprehensible even by the highest angels. Yet no change had come over it since Nazareth. The resurrection was no transformation. The ascension gave it nothing more than a local throne. Like the sensitive blossoms which close when but a hand's breadth of cloud floats over the sun, so the sacred humanity concealed altogether this intrinsic glory in the holy house of Nazareth, with its flower leaves closed in upon themselves under the chill shade of humiliation. Yet was it only so kept down by the might of a love which was vehement enough to redeem a world. Heaven has made no change in that marvellous blossom, but earth, before the dear glory left it, painted five red marks upon its snowy leaves. But let us venture to look more minutely into this sacred humanity. We cannot picture to ourselves the likeness of a soul, the spiritual lineaments of our own immortal being are strictly unimaginable by us, much more so the lineaments of the soul of Jesus. Yet theology teaches us no little about its operations and its eminence. As we have seen before, the beauty of God, that fountain in him so little honoured in the present day, but in which the greatest minds of old were wont to feed their deep conceptions of his majesty, is, as it were, the abyss out of which the divine wisdom omnipotently evokes such devices as shall satisfy his insatiable goodness. It is thus we would express the relations of these attributes to each other. There is a perfect facility in all the divine operations. He would not be God if it were not so. Indeed, facility is too difficult a word inasmuch as it expresses the littleness of resistance and therefore implies that there is some resistance. Just as we speak of God choosing, though the word choice implies comparison and at least a momentary hesitation, neither of which we can admit in God. This superfacility, to coin a word, of the divine operations is something beyond the powers of our language and out of reach of comparisons drawn from created things so that when we come to speculate upon any of God's greater works, most of all his singular works, such as the soul and body of Jesus, we almost unconsciously express to ourselves, in the silence of our conception, the magnitude of the divine work, by imagining the shadow of an effort, even on the part of omnipotence. It is one of the necessary infirmities of our minds that we should do so. Now, if we conceive the almost infinity of space, the vast capabilities of the elements, the terrific ponderousness of matter, 
the huge orbs of millions of suns, the slinging and poising of these immense yet arrowy systems of worlds, and the complicated paths of all those rushing systems in their irresistible velocities, to have cost God no more effort than it costs the frosty air on a still autumnal morning to loosen a single golden leaf from off the tree, and let it waver down upon the silent stream below. And if we add to this the unmeasured realms of spirit, populous with angelic species, each angel perhaps being worth as a divine work all the systems of the midnight sky, and still suppose them all to have flowed out of God's hand without its stirring, as a thing falls from the hand of a man asleep. Yet, when we come to think of the creation of the soul of Jesus, at once, to our imperfect ideas, the divine wisdom seems busy thinking, the divine goodness intently choosing, the divine beauty studiously reflecting itself, the divine power gathering itself up for the effort implied in the grandeur, the eminence, and the singularity of the work in which it is about to be engaged. This is our way of putting the matter to ourselves, untrue in itself, and yet helping us towards the truth. For this creation, the soul of Jesus, is lovelier than the intelligences of the angels. It is vaster than sidereal space, it is more various than material nature. Or it would be more true to say that it united in itself, and unutterably surpassed all the actual magnificences of all other creations, whether Mary, angels, men, matter, or new creations yet to be. We can say almost all things of it. We can only not say of it that creative omnipotence so exhausted itself in it that now it cannot equal or surpass it. Perhaps in one sense no better soul was strictly possible, because no fitter one is possible. For the optimism of the divine works consists rather in the eminence of their fitness than in their absolute excellence. Let us imagine this soul to ourselves as a world of light, with its shores and waters, its woods and mountains, all fashioned of the purest glowing light, transparent throughout the whole of its immense orb, full of variety, full of softly flashing depths, unpartitioned yet unconfused, a translucent crystal world, seen through on every side, and on every side through its calm rich light, God is seen, the beautiful Godhead, self-disclosed by excess of beauty, and self-obliterated by excess of light. Without, it is piled high with intolerable sublimities of light, whose pinnacles are hidden in the lightnings of the eternal throne. Within, it appears to withdraw itself in four abysses, now blending in one effulgence, now floating off from each other as if they were distinct, and now opening out one into another with such perspective that we cannot discern where one begins and the other ends. For, like light in unstable water, the divisions bend and gleam forever. Then, though they seem to be abysses, they are rather plenitudes, plenitudes of living brightness. The first is the plenitude of nature. All nature seems to be there, and all the excellences of all natures. We perceive nature to be there in such wise as that this soul is the centre, the cause, the model, the completion, and the crown of all nature, whether angelical, human, or material, as we have already seen elsewhere. Such a beautiful perfection and glorious abundance of nature is in that soul as to include in it the rightful sovereignty over all natures, the root on which the grace of headship is grafted, belonging to it rather in right of its humanity than of its union with the divinity. For the sovereignty of this last is of a different sort, resting on other grounds and due upon other counts. 
It has even a natural capacity, or rather a capacity in consequence of its nature, of receiving such a communication of the divine nature as no other creature, however sanctified, has ever received. God, it is said, communicates himself to creation in four ways, by nature, by grace, by glory, and by the hypostatic union. But we better perceive the unity of creation as itself a transcript of the divine unity, if we say that God creates for the purpose of communicating himself to things outside himself, which are creatures, and that the way in which he does so is one, namely by the hypostatic union. For, rightly considered, nature, grace, and glory are mere corollaries of the hypostatic union. They flow out from it, being already virtually included in it. All natures outside God exist because of this assumed nature of the word. All grace is not only because of his grace, but from his grace and through his grace. All glory, angelic or human, is some sort of a transformation into the likeness of the incarnate Son of God. The second plenitude of our Lord's human soul is the fullness of its grace. We must but sketch in a few sentences what it would require a whole treatise to evolve. Four depths are enclosed within this depth. He has, and none other has but he, the unshared grace of union, that irresistible penetrative unction of the divinity, which steeps, as in beatifying fire, the faculties of his human nature, and gives to its operations an illimitable worth. It is God's greatest work, done for this soul alone, and it implies a union of the Father and the Holy Ghost with the soul of a kind quite as unimaginable as its union with the person of the Word though of a totally different character, another sort of indefinable intimacy with the Godhead. Then follows an abyss of sanctifying grace, which none can fathom, though we are told it comes within the possibility of being fathomed, because it is just short of infinite. Theologians not a few have absolutely pronounced it infinite. If the least fraction of sanctifying grace literally outvalues all that nature has of dignity and worth, what must the grace of the soul of Jesus be to which the combined graces of men, angels, and Mary, multiplied in countless individuals, outspread over patient ages, hardly afford an approximation? Nay, if the opinion of some theologians be true, that all the graces of Christians were once numerically in our blessed Lord, that all grace in us is only the presence by replication, as the schools speak, of some of the identical grace which was actually and physically in our Lord's soul, and therefore that every grace is, or has been, actually and physically in Him before, then our graces are something more than approximations of His. This doctrine presents us with a picture of His soul, the fascinations of which can only be appreciated by long and loving meditation. It brings us into startling relations with Bethlehem, with Nazareth, and with Calvary. Yet there is another depth beyond, a serene, capacious land, filled to overflowing with the seven gifts of the Holy Ghost. Not even excepting the higher angels, there are no spiritual creatures, which we know of, of such ravishing beauty as these peculiar created gifts of the third person of the Holy Trinity. A slight luster of them makes a man shine on the altars of the church as a saint, and the nations see him afar off, and shout with joy as at a new creation of our Heavenly Father. And he does not wax dim through the thick ages, but is a steady light, giving light in the darkness of time, yet only like an unrisen sun compared with the light, distinctive and distinguishable, which he will give throughout eternity. 
These gifts sparkled in the angels, and even apostles fell down to worship when they saw, mistaking so great a splendor for divine. They gleam in Mary with so full a ray that we are blinded to her true greatness, and only see her as we see shapes in the quivering shield of the sun. But they blaze their highest, unconfined and unconsuming, in the soul of Jesus, in a breadth and depth and with a piercingness of which the most heroic saints would be incapable. Beyond this again there is another depth, where, sweetly mastering all creations, meekly enthroning itself by the side of God, the grace of headship dwells. Behold, its unebbing tide leaves not one rim of shore, yet out of it all the graces of angels and of men have been drawn, and the deep feels it not. Through seven kingly arches, with no stint of magnificence in their vast design, but of giant stride, the grace is rushing at all hours in sacramental streams, or better say deluges of love, over the outspread world. Countless other rents let out that sea of light in a thousand directions, the whole world outside of it streams like a cavern underground, and drips and shines forever, yet the inward ocean sinks not. All government, all right of judging, all dominion, and all usufruct of creatures, all spiritual eminence, all infallible, indefectible pontificates, all the prophetical, sacerdotal, and regal prerogatives of Jesus come from this grace of headship. It binds the two ends of time together, and carries them on with itself into an eternity, which, though it had a beginning, can never know an end. Look at the top of heaven and see the sweet grandeur, tender for all it is so colossal, man-loving if ever there were love of man, of the glorious Prince St. Michael. Remember that he was saved by the grace of this human soul equally with the relapsed sinner whom the precious blood has saved by the peculiarly human method of redemption, and whom the single touch of a single sacrament has just borne through a safe judgment into a secure eternity. End of section 21